Cindy Sharp uh, of our pulpit team drives a yellow VW Beetle with the license plate M-N-Y-O-N. It's a, it's a tip of the cap to the delightful minions from the Despicable Me movies. Cindy loves her car. She loves it when people chuckle over her car. And that car led to an excellent illustration of the major point in our biblical text today. The point is this. Receiving good news requires listening. To hear good news, you must listen. Here's the story. The story goes like this. Cindy wrote me and said this. Wayne, I was at the local post office sitting in my car waiting for one of my boys to come back from posting a package when I noticed a little boy and his mother. Mom was on the phone and not paying much attention. One hand holding his, one hand holding the phone to her ear, she was a tad miffed when the boy kept tugging on her arm. He was laughing and pointing at my silly little, little yellow bug and its minion license plate. She got more and more annoyed. She even took a moment away from her all-important phone call to snap at him. I could almost see his spirit deflate. She goes on. I was still sitting there when they came out. He was still tickled when he saw the car a second time, but this time he didn't try to share it with his mom. It made me so very sad that she missed the opportunity to laugh with her boy. How much do we miss because we are too busy to listen? Close quote. It's heartbreaking, is it not? Of course, we're not picking on that one mother. Sadly, every one of us has made that same mistake, and not only with children. You and I have missed the opportunity to receive fun news from our Heavenly Father. This is even more tragic because the Lord has great news to share. If people will just listen, just listen. For example, open your Bible to Exodus chapter 5. Exodus is the second book in your Bible. Open it up. Uh, Exodus chapter 5, let's start reading in verse 20, and this, this is a section where God gives, God gives amazing good news, amazing covenantal news. Chapter 5, starting in verse 20. When they, uh, and they are the Israeli labor bosses, right, the Hebrews who are put as labor over the other Hebrews, when they left Pharaoh, who in context had told them that they had to make the same quota of bricks even though they now had no straw, a horrible, impossible situation. When they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron who stood waiting to meet them. May the Lord take note of you and judge, they said to them, because you made us reek in front of Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? And why did you ever send me? Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's caused trouble for this people, but you haven't delivered your people at all. But the Lord replied to Moses, now you're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. He will let them go because of my strong hand. He will drive them out of his land because of my strong hand. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I did not reveal my name Yahweh to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as foreigners. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and have remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will deliver you from the forced labor of the Egyptians and free you from the slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who delivered you from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. 
As we point out in your bulletin notes, oh, you, you got a bulletin when you came in. Look inside. On the left-hand side of the notes, you'll see this headline, Moses complains, and boy, does Yahweh answer. This is the typical pattern at this season of Moses' life. He faces difficulty, and he immediately complains to the Lord. Now, now please, let's not make light of the stress Moses is under here. It is no fun to have people doubt your leadership and yell in your face. If you've ever had people accuse you of blowing an entire project, let me put it this way. If you've ever had people angry in your face, raise your hand. You've ever had people angry in your face, raise your hand. Keep your hand up if that was a wonderfully pleasant experience. No hands. All right. We can all relate to Moses' stress here. Now, I have said this before, but it is worth noting again. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture does God express dismay or disappointment when one of his servants comes to him with a complaint. Moses, Samuel, David, Habakkuk, Job, Jeremiah, they all approach God with serious concerns. They even approach God with anger over his plans, but they all go to the Lord. That's the key. It's actually a sign of trust when you engage with a leader, even a complaint, something Moses is learning with God and with humans. But when God's children won't be quiet, when they won't stop and listen to His Word, when they talk to people instead of Yahweh, when they get on their high horse and they start judging God, that's when God gets appropriately angry. Remember, it's when Job indulged in God-judging self-pity that God appeared as a tornado in the man's living room. Would that get your attention or what? Before, when Job was honestly crying out in his bewilderment, God showed no displeasure with him. Same thing's true for Moses, right? God's already hammered Moses earlier in Exodus about his disobedience. Now the Lord hears Moses hurt. He, he answers him with a remarkably kind and, and powerful little theological treatise. This is brilliant. This is brilliant. God says four things here, four things. First, he is at work. This becomes a major theme throughout the rest of the Bible. No matter what the human thinks that he or she sees or doesn't see, God is at work. He is present. He is active. Again, Habakkuk is a direct parallel to Moses. Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, much later than Moses, he witnesses apparently unrestrained, triumphant evil. And, and in response, Habakkuk cries out to the Lord in his hurt, in his displeasure. I'd like you to read God's reply to Habakkuk with me. Listen to how God is at work. Everybody together. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Look at the nations and see. Be astonished. Be astounded. For a work is being done in your days that you would not believe if you were told. God is at work. Amen? So, friends, in light of that truth, let's examine the unfair and even ugly leadership challenges of our days, shall we? As we fight for right, what should our spirit be? Panicked or peaceful? Which one? Panicked or peaceful? Right. We can face lunacy, we can face injustice with calm confidence, knowing that Yahweh is at work even when everything looks hopeless to us. Amen? Amen. Our brethren in China understand the lesson here that Moses is learning. I, I am blessed to have some dialogue with a few churches in China, and they are rightly nervous about the direction of their country. Uh, Communist General Secretary Xi Jinping has punished, I don't know if you know this, he's recently punished every economist who reported honestly about the country's slowdown. The, the, the party, you've surely seen this in the news, the party is also increasingly persecuting churches more all the time. 
I think the most frightening thing going on in China is how Mr. Xi has lately been quoting directly from, he's been quoting directly from Chairman Mao's statements that sparked the horror of the Cultural Revolution, that, that reign of terror during which millions were murdered in the 20th century and priceless ancient documents were destroyed. Should our Chinese Christian brethren be concerned? Yes or no, should they be concerned? Absolutely they should. But you know what I hear from those churches? Along with their appropriate concern, I hear, by and large, churches that are resting on the truth that God is at work. One last note on this aspect of God's answer. Do you see how God's hand is mentioned twice in the text? This is a big deal. My strong hand, my strong hand. Throughout most world cultures, the hand represents power. One's capacity to do work is, is represented by the hand. The most famous modern example is Michelangelo's David, uh, which you see in the city of Florence, which has a, a beautiful but grotesquely large hand. The hand is two times the size it should be for the scale of the statue. Michelangelo is making a statement about his Renaissance belief in unlimited human potential. Much more reliable is God's potential. Much more reliable is the hand of God. Do, do this sometime. Go through the scripture. Look at all the times you see the hand or the finger of God mentioned anthropomorphically. You're going to find that every one of those occurrences is speaking to the power of God. The fact that he is at work. God is at work. And he makes his name known. Look again. Chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I did not reveal my name Yahweh to them. Down, down to verse 7. <clears throat> I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh your God who delivered you from the forced labor of the Egyptians. Back when you and I studied the burning bush passage, we were struck by this name, Yahweh. Yahweh is the special covenant name of God. It's, it's revealed to Moses so that Israel can know God even better than their forefathers did. Yahweh is always used of God's relationship to human beings by His grace. It's a, name, it's a name for a commitment that cannot and will not ever waver. This is the core of true theology, the covenant name of God. The great Old Testament scholar Walt Kaiser said this about the name Yahweh. I like this quote so much I put it in your notes. Dr. Kaiser said, these texts focus on the fact and significance of God's presence as given by his name Yahweh and his glory. His attributes of justice, truthfulness, mercy, faithfulness, and holiness are also highlighted. Thus, to know God's name is to know him. To know God's name is to know him and to know his character. Close quote. Yahweh. Interestingly, Yahweh is also related to the Hebrew verb to be. Thus, Yahweh is a word play, something the Lord really, really enjoys. He even punned with Moses about this at the burning bush. I am that I am. Yahweh, I am. Right here, he does the same kind of pun. He says, I am Yahweh, which is, which is a fun kind of repetition. It's from the Department of Redundancy Department. I am is self-existent. And, and his covenant is tied to the fact that he is and he always will be and he always will be true to himself. He can be no other. The God of the covenant is. So listen up. Listen up. All you people who were soured by the dismal events on the world stage today. Not only is your God at work, he's made known his covenant name. 
a name that shows he is and he always will be. He is large and he is in charge. The, the somewhat wacky but gifted Canadian pastor Albert Simpson, he summarized the whole concept this way. This is well said. Look what he wrote. The scantiness or fullness of your life depends on how large a God you have. The God of most Christians is not much larger than the dumb idol of wood or stone that the heathen worships and then takes down from his pedestal and scolds it if it does not meet his expectations. Close quote. Moses isn't speaking to some dumb idol here. He's engaged with Yahweh, the only God, the one who speaks his own name to his people. This God is larger than can be imagined. He is Yahweh. Look to the right side of our notes for the summary of God's third big point. The third big point here is He will fulfill His Word. He will fulfill His Word. Specifically, Yahweh says He will fulfill the land promise that He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see it in verse 4 again in verse 8. Look up here. I want you to look at the slide to see how extensive this promise is that has never yet been fulfilled but will be. It, um, you don't need to worry about the words. Just look at the shading in green. This is the promise that was made to Abraham of the land that would be possessed by his inheritance. It, it comprises the entirety of what we today call the Middle East. Of course, now, be careful. Yahweh doesn't promise that all this is going to be completed under Moses. He just says the process of satisfying the Abrahamic promise has begun under Moses. We're going to later learn in the Bible the fulfillment of that land covenant promise is going to come under the Messiah. When Messiah returns to establish a worldwide rule of perfect peace, and you know where the Bible says he's going to govern from? He's going to govern from this, his district of Columbia. Actually, we should call it the district of Jesus Umbia because that's, that's, where, that's where he's going to rule. So all of us who get worked up over four-year presidencies and five-year plans and children who interrupt our phone calls would do well to remember that there is a kingdom coming which will set everything straight forever. God will fulfill His Word. He is not suffering from Alzheimer's, all right? He is a king. He's not some elected politician who makes and then breaks promises, right? M many of you folks are dedicated students of God's Word. So I'd, I'd like you to volunteer. I, I, let's do this. I'd like you to raise your hand, and when I call on you, tell me a promise from the Bible, a promise that you really enjoy. It could be a promise that's made to Israel. It may not be directly to you. Of course, even the ones made to Israel apply to us. We we are spiritually absorbed into Israel. But, but whoever the promise is made to, what's a promise in the Bible that you really enjoy? You hold on to. Raise your hand. Tell me one of your favorite promises from the Bible. Yes, Leslie. Uh, you will be conformed to the image of Jesus. And you will be glorified. Amen. Well said. Yes. I will give you rest. I will give you rest, said the father of many children. Nicely said. That's very good. Yes. God said, I will never flood the earth again. Promise that to Noah. Uh, and this spring, we kind of had to claim that promise a lot, didn't we? Yeah, it was pretty spooky. Yeah. What else? Somebody over here. This side's gotten left out. Yes. He's faithful even. I am faithful even when you are not faithful. I am <coughs> Yahweh. Those are, those are brilliant. Those are beautiful. Now, let me just ask you this. Will God keep his word? Will he keep those promises? It's a yes or no question. Yes or no. Will God keep his word? Yes. You bet. Absolutely he will. Moses complains to God, and God gives him one of the most amazingly full answers possible. God lays out a course in theology here, a course in theology that matters. It matters to Moses. It matters to us. We learn that God will fulfill his word. He will make his name known. He, he, he's at work, we learn. And finally, we learn that he frees 
and he redeems. Look, at, look again at verses 5 through 7, if you would. Oops, my bad. Can we go back? There we go. Verses 5 through 7. Furthermore, God says, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will deliver you from the forced labor of the Egyptians and free you from the slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people. And I will be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh your God who delivered you from the forceful labor of the Egyptians. Israel here is being granted a free relationship with God himself. Do you, do you see the clause, you will know, in verse 7? That's very intimate personal language. God is redeeming his people. You know what he's doing here? He is raising these people to something never imagined ever imagined in the pagan world. He is offering them an interpersonal relationship with God. In, in fact, the covenant community of grace is shown to be all about this relationship of redemption and freedom. There is something deep in the human soul that thrills at redemption. It's, it's part of how God's wired us. People all across the human spectrum are moved by the ideas of freedom and rescue. Now, of course, the New Testament develops this, showing how freedom and redemption receive their full expression in Jesus. That's why we take this Lord's Supper, to make sure we remember. We remember that the triune God is the rescuer of souls. We remember that Exodus is pointing clearly to Jesus, who gave his life on that cross and rose from the dead so humans could be free, who could be free from sin. We remember that no matter what we face, our God is bigger. No matter how enslaved we become, in Jesus we're free. No matter even if we die, we remember that in Jesus Christ we have everlasting life. Amen? We remember the greatness of our God. And when one remembers, when one listens to Him, one learns about redemption and freedom. Isn't that speech worth hearing? Sure it is. But look at the incredibly sad reality of verse 9. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. People don't listen. When I was a little kid, when I was a little kid, the world was a pretty dark place. America, when I was little, was mired in an incredibly unpopular war. The family structure was being torn apart. But people forget this. Billions of people lived under the horror of communism. In inflation was out of control, and it seemed, it seemed that no one had ears to hear any good news. Just no one had ears to hear. It was in that environment that Robert Lamb, a kid from Chicago who was in a band that he called Chicago, he wrote a song, and his song contained a desperate plea for people to listen to listen to words about positive change. The song actually became a big hit. It was called Saturday in the Park. It's kind of been transgenerational. How many of you know the song Saturday in the Park? Okay, lots of you do. It contains this line. It says, listen, children, all is not lost. All is not lost. No, 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 he wrote. The very same year that that, that song was released, Robert Gates and his band Bread recorded another song. They titled their song Mother Freedom. It also was a big hit. It hasn't lasted as well, but it had this lyric. Freedom, keep walking, keep on your toes, and don't stop talking about freedom. Get going. Lots to be learned and lots to be known about people. Got to reach them. Sit them right down, and then you got to teach them about freedom. Got to win it. Got to put yourself smack dab in it. Hey, tomorrow, now don't you go away. 
because freedom just might come your way. The reason I point these songs out to you is I want you to hear the desperation. Notice the desperation of these songs recorded during the dark days of 1972. Why are these bands pleading with people, listen, hear a positive message about freedom? Here's why. They're pleading because the people most in need of freedom and restoration is a truism in life. Listen, the people most in need of freedom and restoration are often the least likely to listen to the message and respond. The Hebrew text explains why this phenomenon is so widespread. Do you see the phrase broken spirit in your Bible? Broken is the Hebrew word koser. Uh, he used to play football for the Cleveland Browns. Uh, Coser, sorry, Coser. Coser means something that is needed, it's necessary, but it's missing. Isn't, isn't that a really cool way of thinking? And it's just like the Hebrews to take that whole concept and put it in one little word. Something that's necessary but missing, Coser. Coser is a pitcher without a baseball. Coser is a programmer with, without a computer, Right? It, it, it's broken, the way we translate it, despondent, because coser means the missing element ruins everything. It's, it's no good. Whether it's the ancient Hebrew or the modern atheist, this is what keeps the captive. This is what keeps the captive from hearing the news he needs to hear about freedom. Coser. Something critical is missing in their spirit. We know it is so easy to see and hear only the hard labor to accept as normal and eternal the whole in one soul. Thank God he is not content to leave us there. God is the freedom giver who engages with people so their broken spirits can be revived. As, as Blaise Pascal put it, God fills the vacuum in human hearts that only he can fill. And that's why God resets Moses for freedom bringing work. Take a deep breath. Everybody take a deep breath, okay? The thought section actually goes on. It, it, it goes right, there's a then there, which means the, the idea is to read it all together. And this is longer than human beings in this day and age can endure, okay? In a day when, when I am unhappy if my computer takes four seconds to boot up, there is absolutely no way you're going to make it through this text with me. So, Father, please bless my brethren that we might learn. Amen. All right, here we go. Chapter 6, verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go from his land. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, if the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me since I'm such a poor speaker? And he said it just like that. <laughs> then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them commands concerning both the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. Now, little inclusion here, verse 14. These are the heads of their father's families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanach and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their genealogy. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimea by their clans. The sons of Kohath. Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mahli, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their genealogy. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nephig, Zichri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elisheba, daughter of Aminadab and sister of Nashon. She bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. 
the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Aaron's son Eleazar married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the Levite families by their clans. It was this Aaron and Moses whom the Lord told, bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt according to their divisions. Moses and Aaron were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in order to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. On the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I'm telling you. But Moses replied in the Lord's presence, since I'm such a poor speaker, how will Pharaoh listen to me? Chapter 7, the Lord answered Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you, then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my hand on Egypt and bring the divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Stop there. That ends the thought section. Holy cow, only six people went to sleep. Give yourselves a hand. That was really remarkable. Well done. It's very impressive. What God shares here, what you just listened to is like a carefully crafted symphony, and it comes in three movements, okay? Three movements. First movement of this symphony is the, is the idea that Moses has nothing to offer. Notice how demoralized Moses is. He even falls back into his old favorite lie that him no speak good, right? <laughs> Every time I read this, I think of that old Saturday Night Live skit, where the guy says, some people have a way with words and other people no have way, right? That's awesome. That's Moses right here. And we know the truth. Moses actually has a great God-given capacity for speaking. He's a brilliant speaker. He's a brilliant writer. God has gifted him. He's just whipped. Being yelled at has completely unhorsed him, so much so that he lies in God's presence. However, Moses is correct in this sense. He can't pull this off. The work before him is beyond him. And not merely because Moses has had a bad day. He had a bad day. It's not just that. Nobody can do this. The work is more than Moses or any human can accomplish. And that's why this is exciting. This is why Christian leaders get excited when people in a ministry start moving towards ideas that are beyond what is humanly possible. We get thrilled... I tell you, as pastors, we get thrilled when you come up with things to do that we frankly cannot pull off because that's where we stop acting like Moses here, focusing on what he can't do and start focusing on what God can do. Notice that verse 29 stresses Yahweh is the power. Moses has nothing to offer, but God does. That's been the lesson since the beginning of Yahweh's engagement with Moses, but here we have a powerful reminder, and that's why the text then dives into Moses' background, pointing out, second movement of the symphony, that Moses' heritage isn't spectacular. This is so incredibly cool. Look, look at how God has Moses put this all down. Okay, look at your text. Verses 10 through 13 contain pretty much the same information repeated in verses 26 through 30. Did you catch that? All right, now look, the line that starts verse 14, same words are used again to end the line that we call verse 25. Do you see how the text steps down section by section? This is called a chiastic construction, or if you're really fancy, a chiastic construction. The data is repeated with slight additions with a standalone section in the middle. This is always done so the reader's eye will be drawn to the center. Remember, these kind of texts are like Oreos, right? Everybody wants to eat the center filling first, all right? 
And in the center of it all is the lineage of Moses and Aaron. Now, you would expect, given that super stylized kind of setup, to discover that Moses is descended from the greatest of humans. Instead, hilariously, we discover that Moses and Aaron's family heritage is uh, pretty embarrassing, actually. Look, look, the recounting stops after only three of Jacob's sons. You know why? Because the point's already made. It's already clear. Moses does not come from the firstborn who's always important in ancient cultures. Oh, no, no. Moses comes from the third son, Levi. He doesn't even spring from the line of Levi's firstborn, but from Levi's second son. Moses isn't even the oldest son in his own immediate family. He's number two there as well. Back to those three oldest sons of Jacob. Do you know this? They were each so nasty that every one of them inherited a curse. Reuben lost his birthright as firstborn. He was not considered firstborn. Simeon and Levi were so horrible as people that they weren't even allowed to have a territorial inheritance when they went into Israel like all of the other tribes. Exodus chapter 6 is like a modern person going on to a genealogy website doing a whole lot of work only to find out that their most immediate and significant direct ancestor is Ivan the Terrible, right? And then, and then the computer speaks to you in a bad Russian accent and says, your family is embarrassment, right? <laughs> that's Exodus chapter 6. And remember, that's the main point of the text. Everything you just read was to set up this inclusio, this, this chiastic structure, in order to highlight this one thing. Why? To emphasize that nothing is accomplished by Moses' power. Folks, we're about to see unbelievably great, world-changing events come through Moses. Therefore, it is important to note that everything we're about to see is achieved by God's Dr. Kaiser summarizes, I think, perfectly. Look, look what Walt says. Everything in the list suggests that God's choosing Moses had nothing to do with natural advantage or ability. So the making of this same Moses and Aaron, as well as the uses they were put to after they were made, was totally the work of God. There was nothing for them to claim or boast about in their pedigree, close quote. The bottom line is the third movement of this symphony. God is the prime mover. God is the one who directs all. Chapter 7, verse 5, look at it again. <clears throat> the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. Isn't that awesome? If, if you haven't yet, I hope you will experience, many times over, I hope you will experience what Moses experiences here. Moses gets to see the real story. He understands the truth about the only reason that anything positive is ever accomplished. It is never because of us. It is always because of the Lord. Remember the import of hand? God's power, His hand, is the only power that achieves the right ends. In their textbook on the Bible, my colleagues at Watchtaw Baptist, Preben Vang and Terry Carter, they do a beautiful job pointing out the significance of Exodus chapters 5 through 7, what you've just read. Look what they wrote. I, I put this in your notes, too, because I liked it so much. They wrote this. In the encounter, we see God revealed. He is a powerful God, able to do whatever he wills. He's a holy God whose presence demands reverence. He shows his compassion. He saw the misery of his people and has a plan for their good. He's a God of promise who promised Moses his power, presence, and direction in everything to be done. He's a present God with Moses and the people throughout the entire ordeal to come. God is holy, powerful, loving, and willful God who is able to use a man even as unwilling and inadequate as Moses to accomplish the miraculous, close quote. And that takes us to the amazing verse 6. Verse 6, 
So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Chapter 7, verse 6 is a, is a key transitional moment in human history. Moses finally fully obeys, even after getting hurt by the pain of leadership. And you are certainly aware that this applies to us as well, are you not? Many times you and I get hurt by the pains of following Yahweh in this world. We, we bonk into blockades. Even in just leading our own souls, we bonk into blockades. We face in our leadership of other people unreasonable opposition, unkind attacks. And that's why you and I, just like Moses, we need to be regularly reset. We need to be reestablished as God's servants, insignificant little people through whom the Almighty can change the world. Are we ready to accept reset as God's servants? Let me just ask you that. Are you ready to accept a reset as God's servant? If so, say yes. All right, then stand if you would. I'd like you to stand right now. And I want to just remind you of what it involves. It involves the same three things that we see Moses learn. For me to be reset as God's servant and, and for me to enjoy the power of his hand, I need to know that I have nothing to offer beyond God's grace. I need to live by this truth. He is the mover. Not me. He is. And I transition. I'm reset. I'm ready to be a part of his awesome plan when I finally obey. Amen? Pray with me about that, please. Lord, I ask that you will spark my soul to respond to your reset. And, and I pray the same for all my siblings in Christ. And Lord, I don't want to forget, we pray especially for the non-Christians that are studying the Bible with us today. I pray for those who are not Christians to respond to your good news, your great news about redemption and freedom. Listen, friend, listen. There is a God-sized hole in your life. It's a biblical fact. You, you know, you surely feel it. In fact, if you're like all the rest of us, you've probably tried to fill it with many things, none of which are successful. But God loves you so much that he came to this earth, Jesus, second person of the triune Godhead. He came, fully God, fully human, and he died on that Roman cross to do something you could never do, to pay for your sin, to pay for my sin. And he rose from the dead so that every one of us who believes in him could follow him in eternal life that can never end. Trust him right now. Do what Moses learned to do. Accept the covenant God who engages with you, who loves you, who is committed to you forever. Right now, just, just tell God something like this. I believe it, it's as profound and simple and difficult as that. I believe. I trust Jesus. I receive him, my Savior, my Lord. You just prayed to trust Jesus as Savior. I want to rejoice with you. Just raise your hand. Everybody else is praying. They're just praying for you, actually. Just raise your hand and let me see and rejoice with you. Good. Now for all of us, may we go in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we go trusting God only, knowing that that indeed makes all the difference. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.